pray before we begin. Father, as we turn now to your word, we do pray that your Holy Spirit will continue to be our teacher. Lord, that what you've provided for us in the Bible, all the information and truth that you've given, Father, we pray that it will all the time be becoming clearer and clearer to us. So, Father, we submit to you now and we just pray for that clarity that only your Holy Spirit can provide us. And, Lord, that you'll really teach us tonight from your word, because we ask it in the name of Jesus. <coughs> Amen. 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 Right, well, we come now to what I think is something like the 15th talk. It's something like that, the, the 15th study in this series that we're doing on salvation. I think that, that, that at this point it just calls for a brief recap of the ground that we've covered. Where we've taken for our subject salvation, and we've seen really that salvation simply means deliverance. That's what the, the word in the Bible, soteria, it just means to be delivered or rescued. And we've seen that Jesus, I mean the jargon word is that Jesus is saviour, and that's true. But probably the word that is more sensible to use um, is in fact that Jesus is our rescuer. That's what saviour means. Jesus was the one who rescued us. And we've been seeing that because salvation uh, applies to us, humankind, it fits. And that we've seen that we live in time, and that our lives have three aspects, past, present and future. And we've seen that salvation is entirely fitted to that. And we're seeing that there's what I've called past salvation, present salvation and future salvation. Now, past salvation, as we've seen, is to be set free from the penalty of sin. And it's past salvation, because the moment you believed on Jesus, you got it. It's past event, done, finished, you got it, if you've believed on Jesus. All right. So past salvation is to be set free, or delivered, or rescued from the penalty of sin. Then we saw, and this is where we're at at the moment, that salvation has a present tense. And the present salvation is to, having been set free from the penalty of sin, the Lord then wants to go on and here and now to be delivering us or rescuing us from the power of sin in our lives. And we've seen that salvation has a future tense as well. And that one day we will go on when we die or at the rapture. That we are going to be set free even from the presence of sin. And we'll be just like Jesus. And we've been seeing that the Bible calls past salvation justification to be justified before God. Present salvation, being set free from the power of sin, is what the Bible calls sanctification. And that future salvation, being set free from the presence of sin, is what the Bible calls glorification, or to be glorified. And, again, the other thing we've seen is that justification, to be set free from the penalty of sin, was through Jesus' death. To be set free here and now from the power of sin is not through Jesus' death, it's through his resurrection. It's because he's alive and wants to live his life through us. And that deliverance from the presence of sin, future salvation, is going to be through the return of Jesus when everything is perfected. Now, we are, we finished with past salvation, we dealt with that in great detail, and we are on present salvation or sanctification. And we're looking at this from various 
angles. And what we've been seeing basically is that to be sanctified, to be set free from the power of sin in our lives, the process of sanctification, the key to it is the resurrection of Jesus because he is alive. And the Christian life is that Jesus wants to live his life through us. And that sanctification, broadly speaking, the process of being set free from the power of sin in our lives, really is for the Holy Spirit to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we are no longer living in our strength, but that Jesus is living his life through us. And this is what sanctification is. To be delivered from the power of sin is not going to be through what we do. It's going to be through Jesus actually living through us. That is where holiness or sanctification actually comes from. Now, the last two studies we did went together and you'll remember that I was saying, we looked at the verse in the Bible, it says, work out your own salvation, for God is at work in you. And we saw that whereas to live the Christian life, whereas it's Jesus living through us, we saw that that doesn't make us puppets. We're not passive in this. We have a part to play. And we saw from Philippians that when Paul says, work out your own salvation, he says that and then goes on to say, for God is at work in you. And we saw that where he says God is at work in you, that the Greek word there, energio, means to originate a work, to be the originator of a work. But when Paul said, therefore you work out your salvation, that word was katakazomai, which means to bring into effect a work that has already been finished. So we're seeing that what we must do in order to be sanctified is that God has worked deliverance from sin into our lives, Therefore, we must work it out. We must let out what God has worked in. And of course, what has God worked in? He's worked in Jesus. Jesus lives in us if we are believers. So therefore, we must cooperate with him in allowing him to live through us and us, if you like, getting out of the way. And in the last two studies, I gave you two keys, which I said, if you use them together, Remember the old uh, sort of missile silos, to let off a nuclear warhead, you've got to have two keys in at the same time, not just one key, all right? You've got to have both keys turned simultaneously. Now then, for us, there are two things that we must be doing all the time together in order to grow, the two keys that we must turn. We saw that the first one was 1 John 1, 9, where John, the apostle, says, if we confess our sins to God, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. And we saw that we must daily, minute by minute, be living in confession and repentance of our sin. Remember, the moment you sin, you're out of fellowship with God. Therefore, you must confess that sin, and also to any others who it has affected, in order to get back into fellowship with God. Key number one, continuous confession of sin to the Lord, or just being honest about our, our sinfulness and repenting. And then we saw that key number two was Romans 8, 28, that in everything God works together for good to them that love him and are called according to his purposes. And we saw that we can rejoice even through the hard times, that we can be in faith and trust of the Lord moment by moment, even through the problems, because God has promised that even the worst things that happen to us, even our own sins that we commit, are going to work for our own blessing if we are living in daily repentance and confession to God. So they were the two keys.
But you'll remember last time when we were doing Romans 8.28, we went through the Bible and I showed you how it is that God brings good out of evil if we repent of that evil. And I was saying that when you're right with God, then everything is going to work out for your blessing because God's going to make sure. But you'll remember that we were seeing that that was contingent upon living in confession of sin. And you'll remember that I said that if you're not in fellowship with God, if you're not confessing your sins daily, then not only does Romans 8.28 not apply, but you'll remember I said the exact opposite did. And not only will not, you know, everything not work together for your good, everything will positively work against you. Because if you're not in fellowship with God, it won't be a question of everything working for your good. It will be a question that in actual fact what you will experience is the judgment of God and discipline. Now that is what we are going to move on to tonight and look at. Look at, we're going to be looking at the judgment of believers. Remember, everything I'm saying is applied to believers, not unbelievers. This applies to us. And we're going to see what happens if our condition is such that we are out of fellowship with God, refusing to be right with Him, refusing to confess our, to confess our sins, maybe being in direct and willful disobedience to Him about something. So the judgment of believers. But first of all, a quick background sketch of judgment, because there are different types of judgment in the Bible. All right. I'll sketch them very quickly. Firstly, there's judgment on Satan and the demons. Now that is one area of judgment. God has a judgment on Satan and the evil spirits. God has a separate judgment all for Israel. His people, the nation of Israel. Another separate area of um, God's judgment. Thirdly, God has judgment for the Gentile nations. And the judgment on the Gentile nations is in fact 90% related to how they react to Israel. Whether they bless the Israelites Israel today or curse them. So there's a third judgment, the judgment of the Gentile nations as Gentile nations. The fourth judgment in the Bible, and this will, well, it shouldn't surprise you if you've been to all our studies, was the judgment of Jesus. Because the sins of the whole world were judged when Jesus died on the cross. So there's the fourth judgment, the sins of the whole world were judged on Jesus on the cross. He took it. Now then, the last three judgments are the ones that we're interested in in the context of the course that we're doing. Because the next judgment is the great white throne. All right. And this is for sinners. And we're going to see that in actual fact, judgment works in three ways relative to salvation. It works in the sense on sinners, on sons, and on servants. Let me explain this. The great white throne judgment is there for sinners. But remember, eventually, when people end up eternally in the lake of fire, they're there for the sin of rejecting Jesus. Now that is the past aspect of judgment that we've been saved from. Because we're Christians, we will never have to go through that. So the judgment of God on sinners for rejecting Jesus, the great white throne, that is the very thing that our past salvation has set us free from. That is the penalty of sin, the penalty of rejecting Jesus as the Son of God. But the next two are in regards to us as Christians. And the judgment of believers is that there is a judgment in the present tense going on day by day in our lives 
as the sons of God. You see, we are children. We will never be judged as sinners because that judgment went on Jesus and we have been saved. But there is a judgment in the present tense that is working on us because we are God's children, that we are sons of God. And then one day in the future, and we will deal with this when we get on to future salvation in a few months, we're going to see that there's a judgment, not on us, but a judgment on our service. And that one day our service down here is going to be judged by Jesus and we will be rewarded accordingly. So can you see the three judgments we're interested in in this course is the judgment on sinners for rejecting Jesus. That's past, alright, we're free of that. But there's present judgment on us as sons, the sons of God. And there's a future judgment on us as servants, the quality, the faithfulness of our service, alright. We're interested in judgment of believers as sons of God, all right? And this is what we're going to look into tonight, and I'll try and make it clear. If you go to Hebrews 12, Hebrews chapter 12, any special fans of Greek have your notebooks ready. Now then, first of all, what we're going to read, we're going to read from verse 5 down to 11 going to read a whole section because we're going to take this apart I'm going to show you what it means and show you how it works in the lives of people recorded in the Bible now Hebrews 12 start from verse 5 have you forgotten the exhortation which addresses you as sons my son do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord do not lose courage when you are punished by him for the Lord disciplines him whom he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. This is what your hard times are about, is discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all of you have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of the spirits, uh, Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time at their pleasure, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. Remember, that word holiness is the same word in the Greek of sanctification. They, both English words come from the same Greek word. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, there are three Greek words in there that we've got to look at. They're different words, but of course, as is the case in, in our English translations, you get different Greek words all translated by the same English word, and of course, the, the, the correct meaning doesn't come out. Now, what we've got to do, first of all, we're going to pick out the overall term here for discipline that, that, that the writer uses. You find it in the first part of verse 5, the first part of verse 6, and then through from verses 7 to 11. For instance, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. And then verse 6, the first part, for the Lord disciplines him whom he loves. And then the rest, uh, from verse 7 onwards, all those Greek words translated discipline are paiduo. 
That's the Greek word that is translated discipline there. There are two others that we're going to come on to which mean something slightly different. And I'm going to show you that there's a progression here. There's a logical development of activity in discipline. I'm going to show you what it is from the Greek. But first of all, immediately here, we've got the overall biblical term for discipline. My son, do not regard lightly the paiduo, the discipline of the Lord, Verse 6, for the Lord paiduos disciplines him whom he loves. Now this word in the Greek, it means simply child training. This is what this word means. It's the discipline that a father gives his children. It's simply child training. Doing that which is necessary in order for a child to grow up to be a mature, responsible and moral citizen and adult. So that's the general meaning. And of course, discipline in the sense of child training does not intrinsically have any idea of punishment. Can you see that? Discipline, punishment is merely an aspect of it. Discipline is simply bringing them up in the way that they ought to live. But also, this word, paiduo, has another emphasis as well. And it's this, and it will come out soon. You see, it means to train children in the general sense, simply disciplining your children to ensure they grow up properly, but it also includes the specific meaning of with added specific punishments if needed. Now, if you think about it, child training includes that, doesn't it? Because if, if specific punishment isn't on hand if it's needed, then it's not child training. But can you see, this overall term, it means child training, but has in there, in its meaning, obviously the necessity that at times there are going to be specific punishments meted out for specific transgressions. All right. Now, what we need to understand here in this general area of discipline, we've seen it means to train children. It's a family affair. We're talking about family discipline here because we are God's children and God is our Heavenly Father and every good father disciplines his children and it's Father who's doing this discipline. Now, some Christians get a bit hairy when you talk about judgment in our lives because all these fears about loss of salvation come up. Now, by the time we've got to the end of this course, you will not have any doubts at all that the Bible quite clearly states that salvation cannot be lost. So throw that, that idea of why. In, in fact, discipline or judgment is a proof that we are eternally saved. Go to verse 6. For the Lord disciplines him whom he loves and chastises every son who he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. Can you see the mere fact that judgment is in our lives as believers, far from there being a hint there that we might lose our salvation, it's the proof that we've got salvation because God does not do what we're going to be talking about tonight to unbelievers because they're not his children. So the mere fact that we're talking about the discipline of the Father to us as his children is showing us that this is a family affair, alright? It's got nothing to do with losing salvation. It's got everything to do with proving to us that we are, in fact, his children and that we're saved. 
So let's very quickly look at these two different aspects of Paidua. Do you remember I said there's the general child training, but also the provision for specific punishment is, if needed. First of all, okay, we're seeing that Paidua means the general discipline of character building and training in children so that they can grow up to be responsible adults. Now in Proverbs 22 verse 6 we read this, train up a child in the way he should go and when he is old he will not depart from it. Now that is what Paidolo is. But remember that that must clearly involve the possibility of specific punishments being meted out if needed. All right. Now then, this is what I call the laying on of hands the other end. <laughs> All right. We know that the laying on of hands brings blessing. Well, this is what I'm going to call the laying on of hands at the other end. Because, I mean, sometimes, you know, you probably find with your own children that they need the laying on of hands. But we're not talking baptism in the spirit here, are we? We're talking about slippers. We're talking about canes. Can you see what I mean? Therefore, again in Proverbs, chapter 13, 24, he who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. All right, so he who spares the rod hates the child. Now, obviously, this is going to be exactly the same principle that we can expect to be working in our lives now that we're Christians. And really, this aspect of Paiduo, remember, it generally means simply child training, but with the proviso of specific punishment if needed. This is when father gets his heavenly cane out. This is when Tickler comes off the top of the wardrobe, or whatever you call yours. I know what mum and dad called ours when I was a kid, so I thought it often enough. Let's, let's actually see Let's actually see this word duo in this second meaning. If you go to Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and if you find verse 16, sorry, Luke 23, Luke 23 and verse 16, and we're going to see it here used in this second aspect of its meaning, and this is talking about Jesus before Pontius Pilate. Now, Luke 23, verse 16, we read this. This is uh, Pilate talking of Jesus. He says, I will therefore chastise him and release him. Now, that word there, chastise, is paiduo. And, of course, in this context, it means to give a flogging. It means to beat. If you go to verse 22, um, Pilate says, I will therefore chastise him and release him. Again, they're paiduo, and it's talking here about a beating. All right. So what we're seeing is that in the general discipline of child training that God is enacting in our lives day by day, we have seen that there are going to be times, if need be, when we will receive specific punishments from God for specific things. Now that might sound a bit hairy, and this is why we have got now to get into the other Greek words here in Hebrews. Because this aspect of actually getting the laying on of hands at the other end is preceded by something else first. And what I'm going to show you is that this child training has three stages to it. All right. 
And this actually getting, you know, when God lets you have it, as it were, and I know what it is for God to let me have it, very, very clearly. I've been through that as well. But there are, there's another stage that goes first, and we must understand this. If you go back to Hebrews 12, find verse 5. Again. Now, we've already seen... In fact, keep your fingers in Hebrews 12. We've already seen, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Now, that's pay duo. But then he says, Nor lose courage when you are punished by him. Now, that is a completely different word. And that word is elenko. And what it means is to rebuke. It means to tell off. It means to convict. Let's see it elsewhere. Keep your finger in Hebrews, but go to 1 Timothy. Paul's first letter to Timothy. And find chapter 5 and verse 20. Now the context of this, Paul is talking about how leaders, elders in the church should be treated. And of course they're to be treated differently all right, from those who aren't elders. Now before you say that's not fair, listen to the different treatment. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. Now then, if someone who's not an elder is persisting in sin, they're to be taken aside and corrected in person, uh, in private. If an elder is persisting in sin, he is rebuked publicly. All right, because you know, if you know, if if you become a leader or teacher of God's word, it's a harder judgment on you. So here he's talking about elders who persist in sin. It says rebuke them in the presence of all. That is the word elencho, and it means to rebuke. It means to tell off. It means to convict in no uncertain terms. Now go over to Titus, one Timothy, two Timothy. Then comes Titus. And in chapter 1 and verse 13, and this is Paul talking about people who go around splitting up families and stuff like that, you know, people who just like stirring it up and, and, and dividing people, you know, just because they enjoy doing it. And he says, this testament is true, therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the, face, in the faith. Therefore, there you have again, elenco, and it means specifically a rebuke which carries conviction. This is, if you like, father's last warning to his uh, erring child, all right? And that what this aspect of discipline is, is it's the Lord saying, look, repent now, or out comes tickler. Can you see what I mean? It's when the Lord's saying, look, you get back in fellowship with me, you get right with me about this, or there is going to be trouble. Now then, let's, let's put that together so far. We've got Paiduo, the overall child training, the discipline of child training that God is putting us through in order to bring us to death to self so that Jesus can live through us all right. But while that's going on day by day, if we fall into sin or disobey the Lord, and refuse, because remember, as we're being sanctified, day by day, we confess our sins, no problem. But suppose something comes up and we refuse to get right with God. Remember, as soon as you sin, you're out of fellowship with God. Confess it, you're back in, no problem, forgiven. But now we're saying that you sin, you're out of fellowship with God, but you will not repent. You will not get right with God on that issue, all right? 
Now then, what happens then is that immediately you go, the Lord puts you through a period of elenco, a period of rebuke. When he's saying to you, get right with me, or there's going to be trouble. This is, if you like, a period of grace before the judgment comes. Because God never judges without giving a chance to repent and avoid the judgment. So this elenco, this rebuke, is the principle of grace before judgment. It's God saying, if you continue to be out of fellowship with me, I'm going to start getting tough with you. So get right with me now, and then that judgment won't come. This is what elenco. At this point, you're out of fellowship with God, but God is pleading with you in order to get back in. You are being convicted by the Holy Spirit of that sin. All right. But if you still will not get right with God, and your time of grace comes to an end, go to Hebrews 12, verse 6, and the second half of the verse. <coughs> Let's read verse 5 again. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, the pay duo, the child training of the Lord, nor lose courage when you are punished by him. That's Elenco, when you are rebuked by him. All right? For the Lord disciplines, we're back to pay duo, him whom he loves, but now and chastises every son whom he receives. Now then, this word chastises in the second half of, six, uh, of verse 6, another Greek word completely and it's mastigu, alright? And what that word means, alright, is a whipping, or a flogging, or a beating. Let's see this word that, that, that the writer uses there. Go to Matthew 10. The Gospel of Matthew, and chapter 10. And verse 17. And this is Jesus warning the disciples about tough times to come. Matthew 10, 17. He says, Beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and flog you in their synagogues. And that word flog, that is mastigo. Alright? Now then, go to chapter 23. Still in Matthew. Chapter 23. And verse 34. Again, this is Jesus speaking. And he says, Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will scourge in your synagogues. And again, that is the word mastigo. And of course, scourge means to whip or to flock. Now this is what the word means. Um, it's kind of, you know, when, when the cane comes out, it, it means a good hiding, a spanking. <coughs> You know, some of you use the term, oh, that child needs a good whooping. I mean, we're not talking about flagellating someone half to death. I mean, don't get me wrong. But can you see this is spiritual corporal punishment now coming into effect? And we are now at that second aspect of the general term paiduo, which obviously reserves the right and the necessity that in the general uh, process of child training, there will be, if, if needed, specific punishment for specific transgressions. So then, what we've got is this. Paiduo, general child training. God is bringing us up as good children. All right. But, if there is any specific, unconfessed sin in our life, then elenco happens. And when that happens, he's rebuking you. He's convicting you of sin. You're out of fellowship. 
He's saying get back into fellowship because if you don't, things are going to get tough for you. If still you are not right with God, if you still refuse to submit to the Lord, then after that time of grace comes to an end, then you get mastigo, alright? And then, as it were, you get your spanking. And God is perfectly aware how to do that. So we can see that when we, as God's children, really step willfully out of line, the Lord does know how to hand out some pretty tough medicine, if need be. But remember, we are not talking vengeance here. We are talking God's determination to deliver us from sin. That's all. And you see, God is so keen. He's, I mean, he knows that the thing in our lives that makes us most unhappy is our own sin. He knows that. He wants us to be happy. Therefore, if we're going to carry on in sin, in order to kind of make it easier for us to repent of sin, he will make it harder for us to carry on in sin than to repent of it. Can you see what God is doing there? But, in regards to this last stage of discipline, the mastigo, the beating, or whatever, you've got to understand this, and there are three three things here. I mean, we're, we're talking, alright, out and out rebellion now, in full knowledge of the, the facts. So then, three things. You will not end up under mastigo not knowing why. Can you see that? You will not end up at that point of extreme discipline not knowing why. Any Christian who ends up there knows why really, because God has made it very clear and convicted them very, very clearly. So you won't end up there without knowing why. Also, in order to be at that extreme stage of God's discipline, we are not talking about sins that you're confessing but still in bondage to. We're not talking about that. Otherwise, we'd all be there all the time. Remember, if you confess a sin, it's forgiven, and even if you do it again, God still has no record of it. So we're not talking about the fact that God convicts you of a sin, and you repent of it, and then you do it again. We're not talking about a kind of a persistent sin that you're struggling with and repenting of. That's not what we're talking about at all. We're talking about willful sin when you are holding out against God no matter what. That is what we're talking about, when there is no repentance whatsoever. And then thirdly, if you ever do end up under this extreme uh, judgment from God, then what you have to know is that the moment that you confess that sin, immediately it ends. And then, rather than God making everything go against you, the moment you confess it, 1 John 1 9, confess your sins, then immediately Romans 8.28, everything works together for good, comes into effect. And the whole thing will be reversed. So there's nothing terminal about this in that sense. Okay. So can you see the point here that we're seeing? That God will discipline his children. He is not going to have a free-for-all in the kingdom of God. And we've seen from this Hebrews 12, where it's very, very clearly outlined. Right, let's see it in practice. Let's see it actually working. Go to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. And we're actually going to see the Apostle Paul writing to some Christians who are at the last stage. <clears throat> One Corinthians 11, 
let's start at verse 27. I've got to give you the background here. It's the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church was comprised of two groups of people, Jews who got converted and Greeks who got converted. Now, in case you didn't know, the Greeks were a real degenerate lot. I mean, they really were. Um, I mean, they were as immoral as you could possibly imagine. Uh, I mean, they hardly, at this point in their civilization, they hardly had a sexual morality at all. Um, in fact, sexuality was tied up with their religion. And that those who were rich, as you had a child, all right, be it boy or girl, that as they grew up and reached puberty, you would actually have people come in who would train them in sexual activity. I mean, this, this was where the Greeks were. I mean, they were really sexually immoral. And their religion was all tied up with a temple. And they would go there and they had love feasts. And they would have sex with the priestesses and things like that. And basically it was a bit of an orgy and they'd get drunk and stuff. Now that was the religious background in Corinth that these people had been converted from. Now when they came into the Christian church, the Christian church also had love feasts. Alright? The difference being that the Corinthian love feasts were wild, drunken, gluttonous orgies. Whereas the Christian love feast was the church coming together and having a meal. And in actual fact, this is what, what we call communion is all about. Our practice of communion today is totally unscriptural. I don't, it's, it's crazy, I don't know where it came from. But communion, the love feast, the bread and the wine, was the Christians coming together and they had a love feast. They, you know, they met for a church meal. And because the basic foodstuffs of the day were bread and wine, because they couldn't turn on the tap and get drinking water. I mean, you got typhoid if you did that here. Well, they didn't have taps anyway. But you see, the point is that bread and wine were simply... That, don't you keep laughing at me, John. That the bread and wine were simply the standard food and drink of the time and Jesus made them representative and of course to eat together is one of the final expressions of fellowship so the church came together for a love feast and would remind themselves that what they were drinking stood for the blood of Jesus what they were eating stood for the broken body of Jesus so then these Corinthians came out of their gluttonous you know orgies into the Christian church rather more sober rejoicing love feasts but of course what was happening was this they were soon degenerating into the behaviour that they were doing before they got converted. Uh, let's just see this. Uh, let, let's read first of all verse 27 and 30. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord, i.e. this is partaking of that fellowship meal, in an unworthy manner, unworthy manner, will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now go down to verse 33. Um, so then, my brother, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, um, lest you come together and, and be condemned. And what was happening? They were all piling in for this meal. They were, I mean, they were turning it into a, a kind of a riotous party. Now, the context here that Paul has written to them again and again, they've been told about this. They know better. And in fact, a large part of 1 Corinthians is, is Paul still going on to them saying, look, you mustn't keep going to temple prostitutes. He had such a job getting them off of their old religion, you see. Because for them, sex and drunkenness were tied in with their religion. <coughs> so then that's the context. Now, Paul has told them again and again, this has got to stop. But they weren't repenting. They knew it was wrong. 
But they weren't even confessing it and, and then falling into it again. They were just carrying on regardless. Now that is the background of what Paul writes here. Let's look at verse 31. In verse 31 we have the principle. He says, if we judged ourselves truly, we should not be judged. Now what Paul's saying is this. There are two ways of living your Christian life. When you sin, you can judge yourself and immediately get right with God. Or you cannot judge yourself, not get right with God, and then God will judge you. It's the principle I call that you let God deal with, you know, let God sort you out in the closet or he's going to do it in the dining room. <laughs> Alright? And everyone else can see. And it's all, it all gets very public and messy. So the point is, if we really want an easy life, and believe me, I do want an easy life, life is much easier if you stay right with God. So judge yourself, otherwise God is going to judge you. Okay, now then, look what's happening. He said, verse 29, Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment upon himself, the judgment of believers. And that word there, judgment, is crisis in the Greek. And what it means is the pronouncement of sentence and the punishment being carried out. That's what it means. Uh, when a, a judge finds you guilty and passes sentence, that is crisis in the Greek. And that's the word here. All right. So then, this is what Paul is saying to them. Now, verse 32, he says, But when we are judged by the Lord, we are chastened, and there's that word duo, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Right. So, Paul has said, look, for heaven's sake, you lot, if you judged yourselves, you wouldn't be going through God's judgment. All right? And he says, but anyway, the only reason you are going through God's judgment is because God is so determined that you won't just be like the world, that you'll be different from the world. So what was this judgment? Okay, go to verse 30. You might not like this, but then again, that's not my problem. It's the Lord's problem. He wrote this. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. All right. Now, what we've got here is this. They have been warned again and again and again. Because they're Christians, because they're the children of God, they are subject to pay duo. They are being child trained, the same as all believers are all the time. They are in specific sin, alright, in regards to these love feasts. And they had had their period of elenco. They'd been rebuked. They'd been told again and again and again that it was wrong, alright? But they ignored that totally. They are now in Mastigo, stage three. They are now getting, if you like, the laying on of hands at the other end. And the judgment that they are receiving in this instance, because of course it's God's sovereign decision how, what form that judgment takes at any one time. And the form that this particular judgment takes is that some of them were weak, some of them were ill, and some of them had even died. And we're going to look at this thing about believers dying uh, a little bit more in a few minutes. Now, this was the judgment on their unrepentant sin. Weakness, illness, and death. Now, you must understand immediately that this does not mean that weakness and illness and death amongst believers is always God's judgment. It doesn't mean that in the slightest. But it can mean it. That's all. We know that one of the types of judgment that God will use against believers is weakness, 
illness and death. But again, I emphasize that doesn't mean that these things are always the case, always meaning that someone is under judgment. It doesn't necessarily mean that, but simply it can mean that. And of course, when it says weakness, that could well be physical weakness, but it can also mean intense spiritual weakness as well. So then, there we see this judgment, this discipline of believers working in an extreme way in the Corinthian church. And remember, the minute that they'd have repented, it was lifted. We don't know if they did or not, but the moment they'd have repented, it would have been lifted. It was to try and get them to repentance. Go now to Psalm 32, and we'll have a look at someone else. We spent a bit of time looking at him last time, so we're going to have a look at King David. Psalm 32. And you remember last time we were looking about how King David became an adulterer and a murderer. And because he repented, we saw how even that, because he repented, worked together for his own good. All right. Now, what we're going to look at now is tied in with that exact same episode. Because in Psalm 32, we actually have recorded the prayer of repentance that King David prayed regarding his sin concerning Bathsheba and her husband. We're interested in verses 1 to 5 and 8 to 9, alright? Now, remember, this is King David. He has sinned with Bathsheba. He's committed adultery. He's got a pregnant. He's therefore had to arrange to have her husband murdered to cover up his sin. Now, let's read it. Remember that we're going to see, this is King David knowing all about judgment on the believer. He says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity. Now there, in a sentence, you have past salvation. And I hope that verse will take you back to all we did in the first part of this course. Now, can you see that even though this is a psalm about David being under judgment from God, he begins it with a celebratory statement of the fact that nothing can take away his salvation. Can you see? We're not talking loss of salvation when we talk about judgment of believers. We're simply talking about God bringing up his children. So in this psalm, David knew that in regards to his eternal relationship with God, his sin was forgiven, his sin was covered, no iniquity was imputed to him, because his sin, like everyone else's, was laid on Jesus when Jesus died. And of course the death of Jesus worked backwards in time, as well as forwards, so this is how Old Testament believers got saved as well. David believed on the one who was to come. So we're not talking loss of salvation here when we're talking judgment of God. Verse, uh, the second half of verse 2, he says, And in whose spirit there is no deceit. You know, a man after God's own heart, alright, how would you define that? Well, David was a man after God's own heart. Therefore, in defining a man after God's own heart, are we saying it's a man who never sins? Well, no, that can't be true, because David was one of the worst of the lot. Alright, so that's not the definition of a man after God's own heart. The definition of a man after God's own heart is that he's honest about his sin when he does sin. In whose spirit there is no deceit. Who is honest and faces up to his sin when he's convicted of it. And you remember in, in John 1 verse 47 when Jesus spoke about Nathanael. He said, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. 
And you see, why Jesus was so thrilled with, with Nathaniel wasn't because Nathaniel was any less sinful than anyone else. He wasn't. He was as sinful as anyone else. But Jesus saw in him a man who was willing to admit how sinful he was. Therefore, there was no guile or deceit in his spirit. Now then, remember, David is writing this psalm after he's confessed, all right, to this sin. But what was his condition before he did? Verse 3, when I declared not my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. There you have physical weakness and ill health. Can you see? 1 Corinthians 11, this is the principle, he's under the judgment of God. Verse 4, for day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. Now, can you see the significance of what David said when he said, your hand is heavy upon me? Because, if, I mean, if your son's just had a good idea, and he goes out and he says, my father's hand was just heavy upon me, you know full well what he means. He's had a good spanking, hasn't he? Because that's what he deserved. Now, because David committed this sin and then tried to cover it up, for the period during which he was covering up, God beat him. He really had a bad time because he was trying to be dishonest. He was trying to avoid the consequences of his sin. And, and he said, my strength dried up as by the heat of summer. But you see, eventually he did confess. He says, I acknowledged my sin to thee and I did not hide my iniquity. Here, this is 1 John 1 verse 9. Here he's getting right with God. He said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Will you notice, please, what I said about repentance? It's got nothing to do with feelings. It's an act of the will. Mm. doesn't matter whether you feel sorry, but it does matter that you admit you've done wrong and make the appropriate apologies to the Lord and anyone else. And David said, I will confess my transgression. We don't know whether he felt sorry, but he says, I will. He said, this is an act of the will that I'm going to do. And this is interesting, because once he did that, he says, then you forgave the guilt of my sin. Now, his sin was forgiven the moment he confessed it, but here, he also has the guilt of his sin forgiven. And this is really important, because you, you meet a lot of Christians who have a problem with guilt. They're always feeling guilty for things that aren't wrong. Do you see what I mean? I mean, it's not that they've done anything specifically wrong, they just feel guilty, alright, and they've got this guilt thing. Now I'm convinced that there's a reason for that, because if you're full up with guilt, I mean it hasn't come from nowhere, it's come from somewhere, and I'm convinced that the truth of this often is that if a Christian is not confessing the sins he does commit, or she does commit, if you don't confess them, well if you've sinned you're guilty. Therefore, true guilt is actually building up in you because you're not confessing it. But the point is, that guilt then overflows into the rest of your life and you end up feeling guilty for things that aren't wrong. Can you see the principle? And I'm convinced that for people who've got a guilt problem, they've got to find out what the sins are that they're meant to be repenting of. And I know what it is to be highly repentant of everything except what the Lord's convicting me of. <laughs> I've played that trick as well. You know, and I mean, people with a guilt problem, I think that sometimes that is going to be a key in it. So then, we've seen here King David actually get to the beating stage. The Lord's hand was heavy upon him. But where was his period of elencho? Where was his time of grace? Where was the conviction of sin? 
Right, go to the second book of Samuel. Second Samuel, and we're back in chapter 12. Second Samuel and chapter 12. And what we want, 2 Samuel 12, verse 1. Now this is after he's committed this sin, adultery and murder. Verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now what was so awkward about that is that Nathan was a prophet. And what's so awkward about prophets is that they know things about you that you don't want them to know. <laughs> and the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now what he does, and we haven't got time to go into it, is, is that Nathan tells him a little story all right, about an injustice that someone else did, which was equivalent to what King David had done. And uh, he sort of says, you know, looks kind of, you know, what would you do to a man like that? And David was outraged, and yet it was the very thing that he had done. And if you now go down into verse 13, uh, sorry, if you go down to verse 7, this is his alleged show. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Here, David has committed adultery, he's murdered, he's hiding it, he's covering it up. Now he's got to have a period of grace, he's got to have conviction of sin, all right? And that what happens now is that a prophet comes to him and he says, I know exactly what you've done, David. Now can you see, because David hasn't judged himself, God is judging him, he's sending an outsider to convict him of sin. Can you see? The judgment is getting progressively harder on David. Now go down into verse 13. Because at this point, David does repent. He responds to his period of elenco. He responds to the rebuke. And in verse 13, he, uh, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. Now can you see, if King David hadn't repented here, he would have died. That final discipline would have come and he would have died. But here we can see quite clearly this process of rebuke going on and because David repented therefore the judgment absolutely comes to an end um, go to 1 Samuel now 1 Samuel in chapter 16 let's have a quick look at someone else have a quick look at King Saul there's only one way to describe King Saul Apart from the Cockney expression, he was a right toe rag. Theologically, what's important about him is that if any believer, if it's possible for a believer to lose his salvation, then King Saul lost his. Must have done. Alright? Now let's have a look at God's discipline working in the life of King Saul. 1 Samuel 16, let's look at verse 14. Because remember, King Saul has totally disobeyed the Lord, he's fallen away. He's totally turned his back on the Lord. Now, now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Saul is totally out of fellowship with God, and he is, you know, not repentant at all. And an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Can you see, this guy has lost his peace. He's in absolute torment. Talk about the hand of the Lord being hard upon him. He's actually got an evil spirit sent to him to torment him. Now then, here, what we see in King Saul, there's no repentance. He doesn't try and get right with God. He simply wants alleviation 
from the discomfort of being under God's judgment, you see. Now, so he's not a repentant believer. He's out of fellowship with God. He's willful. He's rebellious. He's not prepared to get right with God. Now go over to chapter 28. We're now talking about years later. Um, the way... One way to think of, 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 of Saul is that he was a believer for 40 years, all right, and he spent 38 years of them out of fellowship, all right? That, that, was, that was King Saul, all right? Now then, this is years later, chapter 28, verse 3. Now Samuel died. Now remember, Samuel was the prophet. Samuel was God's voice to Israel, and when Saul was first king and faithful to God, Samuel was one of the people that God spoke to him through. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel mourned for him. Uh, Saul had put all the mediums and the wizards out of the land, because he knew they were satanic. The Philistines assembled and camped, and uh, came and encamped at Shunem. Now then, what you've got here is that now, Saul is king, and all these foreign nations are coming to beat them up and invade them, and he gets sweaty. Now remember, a good king turns to the Lord. Saul has been out of fellowship for 38 odd years now, alright? Mm. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. Now look at this, verse 6. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him. Now you've got to understand, Saul is inquiring of the Lord, not because he's repentant, but because, he, but because he knows that God can save him from the Philistines. This isn't wanting to get back in fellowship with God. This is just wanting God to do him a favour and to save his neck, you see. Now then, and the Lord doesn't respond to him in any way at all. He seeks the Lord, but the Lord doesn't speak to him. Now remember, alright, very, very important, Psalm 66 verse 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And that is a promise. If you regard, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not listen. It's as simple as that. Sorry. We can kid ourselves, but if we're out of fellowship with God, the Lord is not hearing any prayers except the prayer of repentance that he wants. Uh, do you remember as well, 1 John 2 verse 11, for instance, he who hates his brother is in darkness, he walks in darkness, he does not know where he is going, and the darkness has blinded his eyes. Simple as that. If you're out of fellowship with God, you're out of fellowship with God. Unconfessed sin, no question. And that is the predicament that Saul is in. Totally out of fellowship with God, he turns to God to get help, and of course he gets none at all, because he's not repenting of the sin that he's committed. He's under judgment, alright. And he's been rebuked again and again and again, and in fact we're going to see that now Saul is going to move into the final stage of Mastigo, and in fact the final stage of the final stage of Mastigo. Because what happens is that now Saul decides, right, I'll, I'll go to a medium, alright? And I'll see if I can conjure up Samuel and get a word from God. I mean, he's, he's now going into the occult. I mean, he's insane. I mean, he's crazy. So he goes to this medium, again doing something he knows to be absolutely wrong. Now, this medium, all right, was a witch. And she wasn't expecting the spirits of any dead people at all. Right? She was a con artist. Uh, she dealt in demons. She didn't deal in the spirits of dead people. She dealt in demons. Now, when she calls Samuel up, Samuel actually appears. And you remember Samuel at this point is down in paradise because he was a believer 
Remember, paradise is up there now, but before Jesus ascended, it was down there. So, so, so Samuel is down there with Abraham and all the believers of the Old Testament, happy as anything, you know, not a problem in the world, and now God allows one exception of somebody being called back from the dead, and Samuel appears. Uh, not the witch for six, because she wasn't expecting it at all, alright? But Saul now actually gets the answer to his prayers. He wanted Samuel, and Samuel appears. Now then, let's have a look at verse... Uh, let, let's actually see it. Samuel's, verse 15. Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And believe me, when you're in paradise, mate, you won't want anyone down here disturbing you. And Saul said, I'm in great distress, etc., etc., uh, Samuel said, Why did you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? Remember, God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. And, and that, 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 that's the same for us as believers. God is our enemy while we are out of fellowship. He doesn't stop loving us, but he's not going to bless us. He's going to work against us to get us back into fellowship, to get us to repent. Now look at this verse 18. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath, etc., etc. Verse 19. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. Tough judgment, but listen to this. And tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. This is the final judgment comes on Saul. Samuel says, look, the Lord's, he's at it with you. He's going to kill you. You're going to die. All right? And in fact, the next day, Saul and all his sons died. They were killed. Now then, remember I said that judgment for a believer has got nothing to do with loss of salvation. I also said that if, if, if it's possible for a believer to lose their salvation, then it had to be King Saul. It had to be. He'd been out of fellowship for 38 years. He was into the occult. Didn't bother murdering people at all. He was beyond any conscience of things like this. And look what, what Samuel says to him. Tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. Well, where was Samuel? He was in paradise. Of course Saul hadn't lost his salvation. He was a believer. But what happens is this. And what we're looking at here is what the Bible calls the sin unto death. Because there can come a point when the Lord knows that one of his children is not going to get right with him. Can you see it? And the Lord knows that it's not worth carrying on. They're just not going to get right. They're so determined to stay out of fellowship. That, you know, and, and look, what the Lord says, he says, look, there's no point in me disciplining you or judging you. Nothing I do is going to make you repent. Therefore, I can get no fruit out of you in this world whatsoever. So he says, might as well come home then. So he kills them. And you know what happens? Microsecond after they're dead, they're with Jesus in paradise. Which is exactly where Samuel was. The sin unto death is simply, and we'll actually see it in a moment, in the epistle of John. The sin unto death is when God simply gives up, because he knows that they will not repent. So he says, well, you, you might as well come home. No point you staying on earth, because I can't do anything for you. Come home, all right? And of course, home they go, and they're with the Lord. Absolutely saved. This is what happened with Ananias and Sapphira. Do you remember Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5? Do you remember how they lied? They sold a field, which they didn't have to do, and uh, they then gave half the profits to the church, which they were quite entitled to do. They were quite entitled to keep half. They didn't have to sell the field. And when they sold it, they didn't have to give half of it to the church. But they decided to. But 
they pretended that they'd given all of it to the church. Can you see? They were liars. They were deceiving people to think that they were more committed than they were. You know, so they didn't have to sell the field, they didn't have to give any money, but they made out they were doing things that they weren't. And of course, you know, within a space of a few hours, the husband drops wife, and then the uh, husband drops dead, then the wife drops dead. Now, this is the sin unto death. But remember that with Ananias and Sapphira, they lied to the Holy Spirit, but they had been convicted of it. Of course, they had grace before judgment. The Lord had been working on them and knew that he wouldn't be able to bring them to repentance. And because we're in the first months of the church here, Acts 5, the very beginning of the church, God had to make an example of them so that that kind of deception and dishonesty and hypocrisy couldn't become widespread in the church at that particular time. Go to 1 John. 1 John, chapter 5. Let's actually see this. And I'm afraid my trusty RSV has an absolutely disgusting translation of this, which has nothing to do with what the Greek says at all. Alright? I will give you what the Greek says. 1 John 5. You're alright with the AV here, and you're alright with uh, the, the uh, NIV. Alright? 1 John 5 verse 16, we simply read this. If anyone sees his brother committing what is not a mortal sin, he will ask God, and God will give him life for those whose sin is not mortal there is a sin which is mortal now in the Greek literally it says there is a sin which leads to death uh, in the King James it says sin there is a sin unto death in the NIV it simply puts that into modern language and it's correct there is a sin which leads to death and this sin which leads to death it's not a particular sin that if you could, you know, that if you do it, God strikes you down and you've lost your salvation. The sin to death is simply when a believer gets to a point of rebellion where God, in his absolute knowledge, knows that he can get no further with him, so simply takes him home to glory. Alright? And that's what the Lord does. That's the sin unto death. Now, I'm just going to touch on this for two minutes only, because also, can you see here why we have the principle in the church that there is a time to put people out of fellowship. There is a time to totally ignore unrepentant Christians and have nothing to do with them whatsoever. Not even eat with them, not even have them in your house. Not even to greet them. That's what the Bible says. Now remember, the principle we're seeing here is that God, if we get into willful sin, God wants to deliver us because sin damages us. Alright? It makes us unhappy. Okay. So therefore, the principle God uses is that when we're in that sin, He tries to make it harder to stay in the sin than to repent of it. Can you see what I mean? So, He's a right, stay in that sin, but I'm going to make life so hard for you that I'm going to give you an incentive to repent of it. Alright? Now, the church also has a part to play in this. Because whereas God does the judging, when you get unconfessed sin, and I'm talking about blatant, willful, unconfessed sin in the lives of believers, when they refuse to repent and admit what they've done is wrong, then the church is to put them out of fellowship. Can you see? Again, to make it harder for them to live with that sin and to make the prospect of repenting of it a lot nicer than carrying on in it and it costing you your Christian life. So can you see that even putting people out of fellowship is finally only for their own good because it's an incentive, if you like, for their repentance and to get the right of God and back into fellowship. Go back now to Hebrews 12. And we're just going to end on the last of the, the two verses 
that we read there. <clears throat> Hebrews 12 verses 10 and 11. And this is talking about, um, well, let's just read it. For, for they, talking about human fathers, they disciplined us for a short time at their pleasure. But he, that is God, disciplines us for our own good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness by those who have been trained by it. Now, what you've got to see is that here, what he's saying in verse 10, is that human fathers will discipline their children. Now, whereas obviously, ideally, you're supposed to discipline your child for your own good, for, for the child's own good, and that's the only motive. But the Lord knows that we as fathers, or you as fathers, are not a father yet, are evil, that we don't, we're not the perfect fathers that we should be. So therefore, what he says is uh, that, that our human fathers disciplined us for a short time at their pleasure. Now, can you see, the point is that sometimes parents discipline their children, not so much because the children are being naughty, but because the children are getting on their nerves. And the motive for that discipline is selfish. In contrast, he's saying, but the, uh, I mean, it's like a father might lose his rag with a child and give him a good hiding just because he's gone too far and it's yeah. temper. Now, specifically, the writer says, but God isn't like that. He disciplines us only for our own good. God is never out of control with us. He is only doing it for our own good. And, and what you need to understand is this principle, that sin is not dangerous because it's forbidden. It is not a question that God has forbidden sin and therefore said, because I've forbidden it, it's dangerous, stay away from it. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that sin is forbidden because it's dangerous. Can you see? It's not a question of God being a killjoy. Sin is venom. And because it hurts us, God wants to deliver us from it. Not because he's a spoil sport. So then, the discipline of God, this judgment, to whatever length or extent it goes, is for our blessing that we might more and more share the life of Jesus. And then in verse 11, at the moment, all discipline seems painful. Well, of course it is. It's not nice at the time. Whether you're getting your specific smack bottoms for specific unconfessed sins, or whether it's just general child training. I mean, I hated doing my tables at school, didn't you? They weren't a punishment, but that's just part of education. Or doing your scales on the piano. I hate all discipline in that sense. And the Lord appreciates that. Of course it's not pleasant. You know, it, it's not pleasant at all. But he says, but later... See, that's the joy of it. The discipline that you're receiving now, in well, the discipline that you received last year, in 1987, will start bearing fruit with you probably towards the end of 1989. Can you see? Because we're talking maturity here. So it's not nice at the time, but it says, but later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I'll tell you what the peaceful fruit of righteousness, the peaceful fruit of righteousness is when you can look anyone in the eye. It's when you're utterly right with God. It's when your conscience is totally clear. Not because you haven't sinned, but because as soon as you sin, you get right with God. That's the strength. That, that's what, that is, you, you, you can't do anything against a man or a woman. 
who's living in the peaceful fruit of righteousness. They are invincible. You can be as horrible as you like to them. They won't even hate you. Sorry, they won't. Because, you know, they're just lost in Jesus. Can you see? They've, they've received that peaceable fruit of righteousness. This is very important. It, this discipline yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And that's very, very important. And it's important for this reason. When this discipline comes along, you've got to respond to it, not rebel against it. Can you see the difference? If you're going to moan and grumble your way through it, you're not going to get anywhere. All you're going to get is more discipline. But if we receive it in the way that the Lord wants, then that discipline will do us good. And the point is this, that as we go through the general child training of life, what we must do is, rather than groaning and grumbling, we must live in 1 John 1 verse 9, all the time in fellowship with God through confession of sin. And then if we're doing that, all the discipline we go through, well, what's going to happen? Romans 8.28, everything's going to work together for good, including the discipline you're going through. And what will Romans 8.28 mean in regards to the discipline? It means that that discipline will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Can you see why James, when he talks about all kinds of trials and testings, he says, welcome them as friends. Because it's the trials and the testings and the discipline in our lives as believers which is enabling us to grow in the Lord so there's less of us, more of Jesus, and therefore a greater quality of life than we could possibly have had before. So therefore, summing up, we've looked at judgment in our lives in the here and now as believers. God will discipline his children. We've seen its general child training. But in any child training, there's got to be the possibility of smack bottoms, laying of hands on the other end, if needed. Therefore, when we fall into specific sin in any way and refuse to be right, in go be right with God, as soon as you start living out a fellowship with God, stage two, Elencho, you're rebuked. God starts to convict you. You lose your peace. Torment. Like if you're resenting someone, you end up, as Robert says, having them with your cornflakes, don't you? They drive you wild. You've got to win an argument with them before you go to sleep. Can you see what I mean? And, and you're handed over to this torment. So you're being convicted, you're being rebuked. Elencho, God is saying, look, you get right with me, because if you don't, there's going to be trouble. And then if you ignore that period of grace, that period of rebuke, then you're in for it, and mastigo becomes your portion, and out comes the divine tickler, and the celestial slipper finds itself uh, placed firmly on your derriere. So then, that is what we're seeing in judgment of believers, and it works all the time. We are not talking here about loss of salvation. I think I've made that abundantly clear. Uh, we've covered the sin unto death. We've seen it has nothing to do with loss of salvation at all. Have no fear of that. If so be, you are a believer of Jesus. Nothing can prevent you ending up with Jesus in glory. But, having said that, if I put a bit of a fear of you, in a fear in you, regarding being rebellious against God, then I'm glad, because you're meant to. And this is what living in the fear of the Lord means. We're not talking about living in the fear of losing our salvation, nothing to do with that at all. But, but, fear your sin. And I mean that. Do not fear men, 
Do not fear the consequences of obeying God. Do not fear what people think about you, what people might say about you. There's only one thing that you really need fear, and that is your sin. Can you see? Because your sin separates you from God and brings you into judgment until up to the point when you confess your sin. So therefore, to live as believers in the fear of the Lord and to live in awe of our Father as the best Father who will discipline his children, then let's be sober, let's realise that sin isn't easy, alright? Let's realise that you're not going to gain anything by remaining in sin except judgment from God. And this is providing every incentive for us to remain right with God rather than falling away and getting into rebellion and anything like that. So fear, fear this, fear getting out of fellowship with God because you're going to have such a hard time. You won't lose your salvation, no way. Even if you took the Lord right to the extreme of the sin unto death and he said, right, wasting my time with you, zappo. Thunderbolt impacts your name on it, alright? Well, the point is, as soon as it hits you, you open your eyes and you're in glory with the Lord anyway. We're not talking loss of salvation, but God is going to sort us out one way or the other. We mean business with the Lord. The Lord means business with us, and we must mean business with Him. So, therefore, judgment of believers. And remember, judgment begins where? With the house of the Lord. Who, may I ask, are the house of the Lord? the church of Jesus Christ. It begins with us. Let us respond to it properly and grow rather than rebel against it and grumble and to get into even more discipline from the Lord. Right, we continue well, next time. I just want to thank you for that lovely word. Didn't you? Yeah. Just help us to keep it and treasure it in our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.